welcome to this edition of the Fish Bites Podcast. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe, and let us know what we're doing well and what we can improve upon. We really appreciate the feedback. We are two weeks into the baseball season, and the Marlins sit at up 10-8, and eight, good enough for second in the NL East. Connor, how would you assess the Marlins' start so far? I mean, they've obviously, the Marlins have had their rough patches, but I think 10-8 and eight was pretty good. I think this past weekend in San Diego, Sunday's win was huge. To be going into the sixth inning down 3 nothing, really being shut down. They were kind of being shut down all weekend by a Padres starting rotation that's not something that should be too scary. I mean, I'm of the belief that the San Diego Padres are going to end up with the worst record in baseball this year. So it's a good job to kind of have the offense explode in the sixth inning, including Justin Bohr kind of getting off the shot with the three-run homer, winning that game Sunday and winning the series to get to 10-8. and eight. Obviously, they're being helped again by some Mets injuries. This season, a lot of guys in New York have already gone down, missed some time with injury. Uh, so that's helping the Marlins sit in second place behind the Nationals, who are red hot right now. But, I mean, they got a plus 12 run differential in 18 games. Uh, they got some guys hitting really well. The, you know, the bullpen had a shaky start, but it's starting to come together. And I think the rotation's been a surprise. So, so far, I think they've had a successful start to the season. And I think 10 and 8 and second place through 18 games would be pretty good for a team that, you know, obviously didn't look like it was going to be a bottom dweller, but maybe didn't have the roster composition to be a division winner. So I think it's second place right now is a pretty good spot for Miami. And I think it's interesting because if the Marlins didn't pull off that comeback against the Padres in the final game of the series, we might be having a completely different approach to how we think the Marlins are doing right now. Because if you drop two out of three to Seattle and two out of three to the Padres, two teams that are below 500, you question what's going on with the team. But luckily they were able to take two out of three of the Padres. And yes, Seattle was pretty hot coming off a sweep in Texas. So overall, I think the rotation has been a pleasant surprise. And yes, the Marlins bats have been hot. But it seemed to be streaky. The Marlins are, have the highest average in the league in the ninth inning, but they're not scoring until the sixth a lot of games. So it seems to be a consistency issue, but the guys that the Marlins need to hit the ball seem to be hitting the ball. And the run differential is definitely a good sign. But at the end of the day, if that bullpen continues to struggle, the Marlins are not going to be in good shape because the rotation is holding up its end of the bargain right now. And who knows how much longer they can sustain that performance, or maybe it's something that, that might last the whole year. I mean, what do you think, Connor? Do you think the rotation can keep that performance going for the rest of the year? I mean, I think a very, um, I don't know if it was surprising, but just like, actually it was, you know what, I will go with surprising. Saturday's start for Dan Straley, 14 strikeouts. I mean, he had a great season last year, and that's what kind of prompted Miami to you know make the big trade for him and bring him to the Marlins to be inserted as the number two guy in the rotation. But, you know, he just hasn't kind of found what he had last season so far. But 14 strikeouts through seven innings, I mean, you can't really get much better than that in a start. I think that's a sign of good things to come for Dan Straley. Um, Adam Conley's obviously pitched well this year through his first three starts. Um, Edison Volquez has been very, you know, kind of up and down, pretty shaky so far this season. But I think he'll kind of find his role as... You know, he's not obviously a typical ace. Um, he's more of just a guy who was signed and put at the top of the rotation. But I think he'll find his role. And then Wei-Yin Chen, I think, has really kind of turned it around again um, after a rough 2016 where he struggled with injury, struggled with location. I think you're going to see a lot more of what you saw in 2014 and 2015 when Chen was finishing up his time with the Orioles where he was getting a lot of soft contact, getting a lot of strikeouts with his fastball. And, 
really the only runs he was giving up, which we talked about in the last episode of the podcast, was when he was in Baltimore, he was, you know, giving up home runs, which he still does, but he was giving up a lot of solo home runs because he was keeping guys off base, not walking a lot of guys. I think we're going to see that from Chen this season. I think Dan Straley should be a good piece. And although Tom Kohler has struggled, you know, he put in a solid performance on Sunday. And if he's your number five guy, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world. So I think I think this rotation is, you know, looking better than a lot of Marlins fans thought. And a huge key to that, I think, has been the performance of Conley because people forget how well Conley was doing last year before that hand injury that took him out for a, a big portion of the season. And Wei Yin Chen as well, we said in the previous podcast that he has to be the anchor of this rotation. And you're right, so far he seems to be that guy, either him or Conley, that they're both really anchoring the rotation. And having two lefties, solid lefties at the top of the at the top of the rotation is a great thing to have. So yes, Volquez needs to settle in a little more and I think the Marlins knew what they were getting anyway when they signed Edison Volquez. You know he's going to be sporadic. But the Dan Straley performance has to be really encouraging because he wasn't even a strikeout guy last year and he had a good year. So if he starts striking guys out at a higher rate, he might even turn in a better season than last year. So the rotation has some things to be excited about, but the bullpen has some reasons to be nervous as well. You look at uh, Tazawa is is really been struggling. Mattingly put him in a position for success uh, over the weekend, and with the Marlins up three with nobody on, he gets a fresh inning, clean slate, and Mattingly had to yank him quickly. And also, David Phelps has not looked good at all. He finally had one of his first scoreless innings in a while uh, in his last outing, but he seems to be just getting too much plate. You know, a lot of the a lot of the pitches just seem to be right down the middle, really hittable balls. He's striking batters out at a higher rate than last year, and his control is better than last year. I know it's early in the season. It's a small sample size, but control doesn't seem to be an issue. The the issue seems to be the contact and and the ball in play batting average is, is astronomical. It's over 400 this year for David Phelps when it was in the 280s last season. Uh, which could still even be better too. So I don't know if it's time to panic on David Phelps, but it's time to get a little nervous because he does not look like himself. Yeah, the thing is with that, you kind of you talked about his struggles, and obviously his his ERA is inflated. He's given up, I think, 17 hits in 11 innings, which is obviously not something you want to do. His whip is also incredibly inflated. But his longer-term peripheral stats look as good, if not better, than last season. As you said, the strikeout rate is up, you know, the walks are still, you know, not too high this season. And he's a guy that really relies on his, you know, it's a cutter. Sometimes it'll look like a slider, but it's really a cutter, which is kind of a, one of the best pitches in baseball right now, especially for relievers. And he's just getting too much of the plate with that cutter when he's throwing it to lefties, especially when he tries to backdoor the pitch. Um, He's leaving it too much in the middle of the plate, not sticking it to the outside corner. Against righties, kind of the same thing when he's trying to run that cutter towards off the outside corner. It's just kind of sticking in the zone. Once he finds that cutter, though, he's still getting the strikeouts. Once he finds a little bit better control with that cutter, David Phelps still has the potential to be one of the best relievers, in the at least in the National League East. I mean, he has, you know, he's been a starter in his career, so he has the opportunity to go out there, maybe in the fifth inning in a big spot with the bases loaded, get out of the fifth, and then give you a good sixth and seventh and turn the bullpen 
over. And that's the thing. When you turn the bullpen over, you know, Kyle Bearclaw, again, has been great so far this season. Brad Ziegler has had a little, had a little bit of early struggle, but mostly he's been very solid at the end of the bullpen. And then I know a lot of Marlins fans are shaky on A.J. Ramos being the closer, but I think he's done a solid job so far this season. Can obviously get much better, but I think he's done an okay job this year at the end. So I think once David Phelps finds that cutter, which he will, I mean, he has good enough stuff where this is not going to last all season. The Marlins bullpen should be okay. The problem is, as you talked about, Janichi, Janichi Tazawa, he just hasn't looked like he's been able to get the velocity or the movement on any of his pitches that he usually does. The thing with Phelps is he's still getting the movement on the cutter, just not quite finding the right spot. It seems like Tazawa's splitter isn't breaking as much. His fastball doesn't have as much oomph on it. And that could definitely be a problem going forward. It's an interesting point because David Phelps was still running it up to 96 in his last appearance. So the velocity's there and the control is there. So yes, maybe it's not time to hit the panic button on David Phelps, but with Tazawa, I think it's another story. Uh, he just does not look like his old self, and, and age could be a factor. When the when the Marlins added Tazawa and Ziegler, I was somewhat optimistic, but at the same time, I was cautiously optimistic because you're adding two very taxed arms into the back of your bullpen, and odds are, you know, one of them isn't going to be the pitcher they were in their prime. And and Ziegler looks okay. Ziegler's looks pretty good so far, but. Tazawa looks like the the clock is ticking on him, and it might not be long before we see the Marlins give up on Tazawa, and maybe Steckenrider gets a chance to come up and show what he can do. Uh, going back to the Ramos conversation, it's not time for the hot takes yet, but in my opinion, I think Baraclaw should be closing out these games. I think he has shown that type of unhittableness, if that's even a word, that a closer is supposed to show when meanwhile Ramos just seems to always have runners on base even if he gets the save it's never a clean save I I like Barraclaw's just ability to strike batters out at an astronomical rate and he can inherit runners and he'll be okay he's always been the mop-up guy I just don't know if AJ Ramos is that all-star closer that some people think he is yeah Ramos he struggles with the walks and that's kind of been a struggle for him his whole career and even when he's not giving up walks, he kind of struggles, gets himself into three ball counts where he's forced to throw a four-seam fastball over the middle of the plate. And obviously, most hitters know that when you get behind against A.J. Ramos, you're in, in some trouble because that curveball, I mean, is almost a 12-6 curve, and they can drop straight down off the table. But when he's not getting himself into counts where he can throw that breaking ball, that's when Ramos is getting himself into trouble, and he's getting behind too many hitters this season. Now... You know, the closer thing is, it's an interesting question because Don Mattingly and the upper management put together this bullpen where they have some very versatile guys. They have a guy like David Phelps when he's, you know, himself that can pitch in almost every situation imaginable out of the bullpen. You have a guy like Kyle Bearclaw who is kind of your eighth inning guy now, but he has the stuff to be a closer in the major leagues. You have Brad Ziegler who most of his career has been a setup man, but has also spent time as a closer and has had success as a closer last season in Arizona. He was a great closer the first half. He got traded to the Red Sox and became a great eighth-inning guy for the second half of the season in Boston. So there's a lot, including Dustin McGowan, was another guy I didn't even you know mention. He's been you know okay this season, but he was pretty dominant last year in a bunch of different roles. So I think the question becomes if Ramos, you know, he's not getting shelled. 
to a point where you're saying get him out of that ninth inning role right now. I know a team that's had problems like that is Texas Rangers with Sam Dyson, who came in as their closer this year and just couldn't get anyone out at all and kind of went on a phantom DL stint to try and figure it out. But, you know, I think it comes down to a bigger question in baseball, whether or not, you know, you really need a true closer unless you have one of the, you know, three or four most dominant guys, a Chapman, a a Jansen, a, a Zach Britton, then do you throw a real closer or do you just go off of rest and matchups? Because, you know, I, I would have total confidence in A.J. Ramos pitching the seventh inning if it was a big spot and then going to Bearclaw and then going to Ziegler if that's how the matchups worked out. So I think Don Mattingly is in a good position here, and I think this will show a lot about him as a manager going forward this season. He's in a good position where, you know, A.J. Ramos has closing experience, Brad Ziegler has good closing experience, and although Bearclaw doesn't have too much closing experience, he's got the closer stuff. So he's got three guys who he could really use in that ninth inning role. And I think it'll be interesting to see if he kind of mixes up this bullpen and maybe uses a little bit more of a forward-thinking strategy with the Marlins. Well, it's a, it's a great point because I think a closer by committee could be you know, a, the, the right move with this bullpen because, yes, you can go by – you know, who's rested, but I think it's also a good move to just go with who's hot, you know, a big game coming up, maybe Bearclaw's pitching really well. And he's a guy that needs to close the the one run save, but other times Bearclaw has been used a lot and you can go to Ramos. So it's a good problem to have. Obviously it's not time to pull Ramos out of the closer role, but maybe a closer by committee could be, the uh, the right move for Mattingly and the Marlins, and it should be interesting to see how he handles that closer role, as he does have a lot of options. I kind of wanted to segue that into the next segment, which is new for us. We're going to talk about overreaction or not. We're going to kind of give you a statement and discuss whether we think it might be an overreaction or not. And uh, the first one would be, the Marlins have the best outfield in baseball. I think that is not an overreaction at all. May it be a top three outfield in baseball? Yes, but it you could make a case to say that that outfield is as good as any. You know, Ozuna's overachieving right now, maybe a little bit, and his numbers might not be sustainable. But Stanton looks like he can... He, those are Stanton numbers. He can sustain that. And Christian Yelich is underachieving, if anything. So if that, that entire outfield has the capability to hit 280-plus, and each of them could easily hit over... 25 30 home runs and that would I don't see an outfield that can do better than that and uh I I especially with the RBIs too that out that outfield could combine for 300 RBIs so I'm curious what you think about that statement Connor yeah I kind of said last season when you know Stanton was still healthy and Yelich was really breaking onto the scene and this was kind of still when Ozuna hadn't totally fell apart in the second half that this might be the best offensive outfield in baseball. And I think you can say it again, my usual, you know, I think the team that competes with them the most or one of the teams was the Pirates with Starling Marte, Andrew McCutcheon and Gregory, Gregory Polanco. But now that team, you know, is without Marte for 80 games after he goes down with a PED suspension. So they're kind of out of the conversation. I mean, Boston has a good outfield with, uh, you know, Jackie Bradley Jr. in center field, Mookie Betts in right and it's kind of a little bit more of a revolving door in left, although Andrew Benatendi, the rookie, has kind of taken that over. But uh, Bradley has struggled with injury this season so far, and 
Uh, Mookie Betts is just now starting to hit kind of back to his 2016 form. So with how just incredibly hot Marcelo Zuna is, with how Stanton's starting to hit the ball out of the park, and then with Yelich, who, as you said, I agree is underachieving a little bit if he comes back to where he should be, um, where I think my hot take earlier this year was that Yelich would be a NL MVP candidate, then yeah, I think the Marlins have arguably the best offensive outfield in baseball. You know, maybe overall outfield, you have a little bit more of a discussion because on the defensive side, you know, Ozuna's not the greatest defender and Yelich isn't definitely, although a good defender, not the best defensive center fielder out there. And Stanton has some issues out there sometimes, but offensively wise, I think that's the, it might be the scariest outfield to face when you look down the lineup. Definitely, and I, but I do think a dark horse is that Nationals outfield, especially with Bryce Harper being Bryce Harper and, and Jason Wirth starting to come into his own again. And Adam Eaton, we've seen what, what he can do in, in uh, Chicago. That, that outfield could easily give the Marlins a run for their money. But like we said before, the, the Nationals are the team to beat, but that outfield could easily be the best outfield in the MLB. Also, should Jason Wirth not age too much this season and keep putting up the numbers that he's capable of putting up. The next statement that we have in this overreaction or not segment is that the bullpen construction plan was a failure. Now, I think that's an overreaction because it's just simply too early to tell. But to an extent, there's there's something to be said about that because the Marlins bullpen isn't carrying the load like they thought it would. And and like I said, it's early. It's still never too early to start looking at how the team is is built and how they're winning ball games. And it's not winning ball games, the Marlins that is. The Marlins are not winning ball games from their bullpen. If anything, it's it, they're winning from quality starts and putting up runs in late innings. So maybe the bullpen starts to figure it out and then you know the the starters start to scuffle a little bit and, and the bullpen ends up carrying the load but i still think it's a little too early to to make that sort of statement it's starting to look a little bit like the bullpen isn't that super bullpen that a lot of uh a lot of people were calling it yeah i mean it's definitely an overreaction to say that it's a failure i mean tazawa obviously has not been good and i think you made a point earlier that you know he He's a veteran and he's had a good career, you know, all with the Red Sox before coming to Miami. So you do have to take that into account as well. Um, coming over to Major League Baseball and only having played, you know, for one team in one city his whole career. So maybe the adjustment, um, you know, all the way down the East Coast into a, you know, going from the AL to the NL has something to do with it. But at some point, if he's not pitching well, it's just that, you know, he's kind of losing his stuff. And, you know, when you have guys in the minor leagues like Drew Steckenrider and you have a guy like Brian Ellington who can touch a hundred and you have Jeff Locke, who's going to come off the disabled list soon, who, you know, it's been reported that he is going to be in the bullpen when he comes back. Uh, so they'll have, you know, there'll be some tough decisions to make uh, in that bullpen. If Tazawa can't get it together, you know, he could be a guy that could be designated for assignment and the Marlins just might have to pretty much take the L on that signing. I mean, to put it that way, you know, David Phelps, as you said, has not been great, but I think he'll turn it around. A.J. Ramos letting a lot of guys on base, although he hasn't been, you know, too outlandishly bad as the closer. He's gotten the job done so far. 
So it's definitely an overreaction. Um, Brad Ziegler's been very good. Kyle Barakal's been tremendous. Um, so they have guys in that bullpen who, you know, Don Mattingly can rely on, and I think he'll start to rely on these other guys as well as the season goes along. But I do think that Janichi Tazawa's spot on on the Marlins is in trouble at this point, especially because there are guys chomping at the bit in the minor leagues and a guy like Jeff Locke who is coming back um, from injury, you know, probably sometime in May. So I do think Tazawa's in trouble. However, I don't think that means that the plan was a failure. If You know, you really, realistically, you have two new guys in the bullpen right now who you signed in the offseason and one of them's not working out and the other one is. Especially if Jeff Locke comes back and is serviceable or even better, you know, I think the plan at least shows that it that it would have worked out. And you know, it, it Jeff Locke will be huge for the bullpen because a lot of people have criticized the Marlins pen for for not having a lefty. Uh, but I think another sort of kind of disappointment that a lot of people overlook is has been Dustin McGowan. He he's been that he's supposed to be that long ending guy and. He's come into games and he really hasn't kept the fish in games. And if the Marlins have one thing in their farm system or, or like some depth, it is relievers. So, like you said, you know, a lot of guys are chomping at the bit to get that call up. If there's any position that the Marlins have the flexibility to call someone up in, it's relievers. So, that's something that will be interesting to watch and see how the Marlins handle that because. They also have Nick Wickren, who we, we forgot to mention, who also had some success last year and, and would be a great guy to bring up and get some outs of if, if Tazawa isn't cutting it. So there's more than enough options in in the minor leagues as well to, to bolster that bullpen. So I don't think it's too, too – uh, or I do think it's too early to say the bullpen isn't what we thought it would be, but it's definitely starting to – to look like it might not be that super pen, and it's something to definitely look at closely. Another sort of disappointment so far has been Ichiro, and some might think that his career is, is basically over. He's hitting 182 with one home run and seven strikeouts to start the season, and he, he really looks lost at the plate, which is something I don't think anyone's ever been able to say about Ichiro Suzuki in in the major leagues or in Japan for that matter and he really just does look lost his bat looks slow he, he seems to be cheating a little bit out front and and rolling over and chasing a lot of bad pitches and unfortunately it, it might there it might not be an overreaction to say that Ichiro's career is over because he really does not look like he can catch up to a major league fastball anymore. And, and, and it's sad because, you know, coming into the season, he said he wanted to play till he was 50 and, and no one was going to tell him he couldn't do that. But if Ichiro continues to hit at this rate, I wouldn't be shocked to see the Marlins part ways with him. But you, you know, Ichiro has more, more uh, opportunity than maybe the average role player because he's Ichiro Suzuki. But at some point, it's a valuable roster spot. The Marlins might have to look to move on from him. Yeah, you're not um, going to find many bigger Ichiro fans outside of Seattle than myself. Um, just always kind of been, to be transparent, always kind of been my my favorite player that wasn't on my favorite team uh, growing up when he was with the Mariners. But 
you know, the 182 average is one thing. You know, it, it could be put to just a bad start for Ichiro. He's not, you know, he's no longer in a starting role, so he has to kind of figure out how to come off the bench and hit. And, you know, that wouldn't be too much of a problem. A guy like that could kind of figure it out. The real issue is that he hasn't drawn a walk yet. And his on-base percentage is exactly his average, which is 182. And that's very concerning. The fact that he struck out seven times and hasn't walked at all, you know, that's kind of not the Ichiro that people have known his entire career. He's a guy that's been incredibly difficult to strike out and a guy who, you know, doesn't draw a ton of walks because he's not a, a big power hitter who pitchers are scared to throw the ball in the middle of the plate to. But he had a, you know, has had a great batter's eye throughout his career and has been able to draw a good amount of walks. So I think that's a very concerning part. For now, I think he stays as the fourth outfielder for Miami. He brings the experience. He can still play defense. He still has the arm, although his arm's not the arm it was 10 years ago. He can still throw some guys out. Um, but if it continues like this and he continues to hit under 200 and he you know, isn't getting on base other ways besides base hits, Marlins will have to think about, you know, cutting ties with Ichiro. And the one thing with him is I think he's a little more tradable just because even if Ichiro is hitting, you know, 190 in June, there are still going to be teams who are going to think about maybe making a trade for him. Now, obviously it would be a small trade, like a something like a, a minor league prospect, a, a, a single A guy for Ichiro. Um, even if the Marlins were in contention, I could still see them making this trade because He's a guy you can bring into your team and, you know, is only going to bring good things to your clubhouse and he can still get you hits from here to there. The one the one thing about it is, you know, a lot of a lot of teams have veteran guys on their bench, especially in the National League, who are used mostly as pinch hitters. And a lot of them are guys who, you know, might be on younger teams, but have had a lot of playoff experience, which is what they bring to the team. Ichiro really doesn't have playoff experience. I mean, his rookie year with the Mariners... They won the most games, or excuse me, yeah. His rookie year with the Mariners, he went to the playoffs. That was the last time Seattle's been to the playoffs. Since then, I think he went with the Yankees in 2012, and I'm not 100% sure. He may have went with them in 2013 as well, but that's about it. I mean, he doesn't have much playoff experience to kind of help these young Marlins guys if they were to get into the postseason, but if he continues to hit 182 and not get on base as much as I love Ichiro and as much as I want to defend him. And I think he's one of the best hitters in major league history. It's going to be tough for the Marlins to keep him around. Well, that roster spot is just so valuable, especially when you're keeping less, you know, bench players because of that huge bullpen. So if one of those guys on, on the bench isn't hitting, you, you got to kind of keep a short leash on them because you only have five five guys off the bench. So, and one of them is your backup catcher, AJ Ellis, who you can't really count on to pinch hit very much. And so, that's that's the big problem. You know, the Marlins decide that they want to go with the extra arm, which is fine, but that means the bench needs to be hitting. And Ichiro could very easily turn it around. He never ceases to amaze me with what he can do. But he, you know, there's something to be said about the eye test, and he's failing the eye test. And I don't want to get too ahead of myself with all the advanced stats because he's only had such a small sample size. But just in terms of swings and misses, and 
and chasing balls out of the zone, he's doing it at a higher rate than he ever has in his career. And maybe he's pressing a little bit because he's not getting consistent at bats, but that that's a valuable spot on the bench and Ichiro needs to turn it around pretty quickly if, if he wants to keep his spot on the Marlins, in my opinion. But the Marlins have shown a lot of uh, good faith in Ichiro and did a lot to bring him to Miami. So I do not think that he'll have such a short leash. I think he will be given ample opportunity to show that he can still play, but it might, it might be time for Ichiro to start pressing a little bit and uh, look to turn things around. Uh, Danny Echeverria went down earlier in the season and he had just returned and JT Riddle was called up to replace him. And aside from Riddle's walk-off home run, he only had one other hit in 14 at-bats, but some are still saying that JT Riddle could be the shortstop of the Marlins' future. I think that's an overreaction. I said in my previous in, in our previous podcast that I think Adani Echeverria is not the guy for the Marlins at shortstop, and I will stand by that statement, but I do not see JT Riddle being the future at shortstop. He, he It was a small sample size for us to see of JT Riddle, but I don't see much more of a bat in him than a Danny Echeverria, and he's not going to be much better of a defender. So I don't think he's the answer. I've been kind of one of those guys that's been pushing for the Marlins to find an answer at shortstop. I, I know that that's one of the toughest positions to find, you know, a, a good hitter at and in a, in a long-term, you know, solution at that position. But I do think the Marlins should go shortstop in this year's draft if there's the right guy there, whether it's in the second round, third round, or possibly even the first round. I know you mentioned one of the guys uh, from your from your school, University of Maryland. The starting shortstop there is looking like a good prospect. I forget his name slips my mind, but the Marlins do need to draft a shortstop, in my opinion, because J.T. Riddle doesn't look like the answer. You know, he's 26 years old. He looks like he could be a decent role player he plays some good defense but at the plate aside from that one walk-off home run he did not look like he was a major league hitter yet and at 26 years old how much more time do you need to uh, figure it out so I think the Marlins long-term answer at shortstop isn't even in their organization yet yeah I mean that's uh that's a possibility and I think you know, Hecheveria brings good defense, obviously, but it's not superb defense. Um, he makes a lot of flashy plays, but overall, he's not one of the top five fielding shortstops in the game, which I think when you aren't bringing the bat, I think unless you're one of the top five shortstops defensively, like a guy like Andrelton Simmons, who, you know, has been hitting a little bit better lately in his career last season and through this season so far for uh, with the Angels now. Um, but even when he wasn't hitting, Andrelton Simmons was arguably the best defensive shortstop in baseball. So, you know, although the Braves did trade them, they or did trade him, they only did that because they had Dansby Swanson coming up through the minor league system. And of course, the Angels haven't thought about moving him yet. He's implemented as their everyday shortstop without a problem. But a guy like Echeverria, you know, you could argue maybe he's a top 10 defensive shortstop, but he's not really doesn't bring much with the bat at this point in his career. And 
you know, that's an issue. And Riddle obviously had the big moment. His first career homer is a walk-off homer. That's obviously a very cool thing in your first time you get called up to the big leagues. But, you know, and, and as you said, he brought the defense as well, but the bat just wasn't there. But it, it's such a small sample size that I'd need to see more from him at the major league level. But I'm with you. I think outside the organizations where the next shortstop comes from. The problem with Hatchavaria is I don't think you can really get much for him in, in a trade scenario, which means you may have to hang on to him, you know, as long as his contract is with the Marlins. But, you know, as you said, the guy from Maryland, Kevin Smith, Baseball America just put out there top 100 draft prospects for this year. Smith was rated 85th, so he could be a guy where, you know, the Marlins don't necessarily go for the shortstop in the first round. I would hope they go for starting pitching in the first two rounds of this June's draft. But in the third round, if a guy like Kevin Smith is there, who's a great defender with good power, he's a good hitter as a shortstop, you know, that could be a place they go. And maybe if, you know, Hetcheveria is their guy for a couple more years until they breed a, a, you know, a next shortstop to come through the system and be the guy because Hetcheveria gives solid defense, as I said, but I just don't think he has what it takes at the plate to be an everyday starting shortstop in the major leagues. And if you're the Marlins, what stops you from starting Miguel Rojas at shortstop should Echeverria continue to struggle? Because Rojas, in his small sample size this year, has hit the ball really well and has shown an ability to hit the ball the last couple seasons. Might not be quite as good of a defender as Echeverria, but his best position defensively is most likely shortstop. And if you're the Marlins and, and Echeverria continues to struggle... Do you give Miguel Rojas a chance to be the everyday shortstop? I think they they do. The problem is Hedgevery has been their starting shortstop for a while now, and it's going to be a tough move for him, especially coming back from injury, to just give Rojas the spot. But Rojas, in the injury, while the injuries of Hedgevery and Prado at the beginning of the season, you know, was getting a lot of playing time in the Marlins infield, and he was hitting very well. I mean. Rojas sitting 268 and 41 at bats this season hadn't you know left the yard, but not a guy obviously known for his power. But with a 657 OPS, you know he hasn't been too bad at the plate, and I think he should get a chance. Um, you know he could even be a situation where they kind of flip roles, where you know Echeverria comes in in the seventh inning and plays defensively, maybe gets himself one at bat at the end of the game. But I think Rojas could get a shot. Um, the other opportunities there for Derek Dietrich as well. I mean, I know out of all the infield positions, he's probably the most shaky at shortstop. Um, but you never know. He could be able to fill in there. There's always the slight possibility that D. Gordon could be moved back to short, um, I, although I think he's much more comfortable at second base. But that's always an option as well. So the Marlins have a couple options right now, but I, I'm with you. I just don't think that Danny Echeverria is the future shortstop for Miami. And, and I'm a proponent of, of sacrificing a little fielding for a bat. And I know the Marlins aren't with Perry Hill being the fielding guru over there. But I would not be opposed to a D Gordon move to short and Dietrich at second because that provides a lot more offense in that infield. But it just seems like a long shot with the way Perry Hill is with his uh, fielding and shifts and all those metrics with defense the Marlins really take a lot of pride in in how they play defense but the final I guess topic that we wanted to cover is uh, our own Michael Stevenson wrote earlier today about the possibility of Marcelo Zuna being traded and I 
personally think that Ozuna will remain a Marlin for at least the remainder of the season, unless the Marlins have some utter collapse and and are not in contention, because he's he has you know two more years of of control, two and a half that is, and he's a free agent after 2019, so he's a really really appealing target. He's young. He he has not even hit his potential yet in some in a lot of people's minds and he's cheap and that's probably the most important thing of all is he's cheap and so a, a young controllable power hitting corner outfielder could net enough prospects to revamp that dead Marlins farm system and should the Marlins be in contention it's a moot point because Marcelo Zuna won't be going anywhere because if the Marlins are in contention that means Marcelo Zuna is hitting the crap out of the ball and playing some great baseball. But if the Marlins are not in contention, it, it could the trade could happen as early as this year. But an extension seems very, very unlikely with, with Ozuna being a Scott Boris client. So I would not be surprised to see Ozuna traded in the next couple of years. And if the Marlins aren't in contention, it could be as early as this year. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's a lot to look look forward at just because you know we're only 18 games into the season going into Monday night um did have a tweet sent in about kind of the trades from at underscore Tane 23 said if the Marlins are in contention at the trade deadline how would you improve the team I kind of want to you know to start talking about maybe if they aren't in contention you know that kind of connects to the Ozuna thing if they aren't in contention I mean Marcelo Zuna as a trade piece is probably the most becomes the most sought after bat on the trade market, especially if he continues to hit like this. You would like to think if he's still hitting like this, the Marlins are in contention because of the lineup they've put together. But you know, injuries can happen, things can happen where he could still be hitting well, and the Marlins aren't playing so well. And you talked about the years of control, the the contract that's very cheap, the ability to play the outfield, hit hit righties and lefties. I mean, he could bring back a big load of prospects um, for the Marlins if they wanted to revamp that farm system. And the other thing is, with the big contract they got on the books for Stanton, I mean, Yelich has a friendly contract now, but he'll, you know, they want to keep him in that outfield, obviously, and a couple other guys. Prado just recently signed. JT Realmuto is going to need some money at some point. One, uh, one or two of these guys is going to be left out of the equation, and Kind of feels like Ozuna might be one of them, although it's you know a couple years away. So we would obviously talk about this much closer to the trade deadline when we get to July. But it's a very real possibility that the Marlins could trade him just because of the control, the price, and how well he hits. He could bring back so much to a farm system that really needs so much because you know this team is built to compete now, but this is not a team built to win late now. Like, this team could get to the playoffs, don't get me wrong. But they're not built to win a World Series yet. And I think to be built to win a World Series, I mean, Theo Epstein basically set the precedent with the Cubs last year. You you know, you can go out and get some players, don't get me wrong, but your core guys kind of have to, don't even have to really be drafted because a lot of those Cubs guys, you know, Addison Russell, Anthony Rizzo, they weren't drafted by the Cubs, but the Cubs acquired them in trades while they were still in the minors, developed them in their system, and then brought them up. And I think if you want to win a World Series, that's kind of what you how you have to build a team is maybe you trade for these prospects, but then as you develop them, 
they kind of become your prospects. And one guy that could bring back so much for Miami is Marcelo Zuna. And that approach by Epstein is it w- seemed to be an effective one because he kept together that core of the Cubs team that, you know, because the Cubs were in a similar position, kind of in between, you know, where you're you're not doing terribly, but you're also not good enough to win now, like you were saying, and win late. And so he Epstein wanted to keep together that core, so he mostly went after young prospects that were almost major league ready, like like Addison Russell and and Anthony Rizzo, and and that could be the the right approach for the Marlins should they trade Marcelo Zuna, get someone. Gets get a pitcher or or an out, another outfielder that that's close to major league major league ready, and that could be the best move. But like we said, we might be getting a little ahead of ourselves. But with that Twitter question, is a good question. I, it's never too early to start speculating how you can improve your team. And should the Marlins be in contention at the deadline? Obviously, Marcelo Zuna won't go anywhere. But how would the Marlins improve their team? And it's an interesting question because we go back to the weak farm system. It would be really hard for the Marlins to improve their team uh, should they be in contention at the trade trade deadline other than maybe trading Dietrich or Rojas, but I don't know what that gets in return. You said maybe Ichiro earlier. That's going to get a low-level prospect. I'm not sure what you can trade to improve your team if you're the Marlins. I mean, if they needed to, they would have about enough to go get a middle relief type guy that's been having a good season on a bad team. Basically, almost a Tazawa type guy who's just having a better season than Tazawa. I mean, because you don't need, you know, a big prospect to make that deal. But other than that, as you said, if they are looking for, you know, they're coming down the stretch and they're, you know, neck and neck with somebody in a wild card race come July, they're not going to be able to go out and get a big starting pitcher to bolster the rotation. You know, they're, they're going to have to look at some much cheaper options and that's going to hurt the Marlins a little bit going down the stretch because a team like the nationals who they could be competing with in the division, they already kind of have that rotation, but they still have some, even though they gave a lot of, of their best, you know, guys in the farm system up for, Adam Eaton and that deal, they're they're still going to be looking for bullpen pieces, um, and they have guys to give up. And then some of the some of the wild card teams that could be in the wild card contention, like the Mets, still have a solid farm system that they can pick from and make trades with um, other teams in in the NL Central. I mean, teams like the Pirates still have a prospect pool that they can trade from. Same with a team like the Rockies, who's had a good start. Um, so it's really going to put the Marlins behind the eight ball come that time. Obviously, we'll talk a lot more about it when that time comes and if the Marlins are in contention. But it's gonna it'll be a struggle this season if they need to improve the team to kind of make the playoffs. So this core group they have now is kind of going to be the group pretty much the whole season barring injury because they really just don't have the farm system to go out and get other players. And like you said, we can talk about it when the time comes because a lot of teams that aren't in contention might have a older veteran, you know, pitcher that's overachieving a little bit and maybe the Marlins can get for a couple low a uh, prospects. So when the time comes that there could be, you know, a cheap starting pitching option for the fish, but now we're going to segue into our final segment and that is 
my favorite. It's the hot takes. And my hot take of this week is that the Marlins should go after Chris Carter. And I know that Justin Bohr is starting to swing the bat a little bit better. And he just blasted that ball yesterday, you know, Sunday. But I do not know if Justin Bohr is a full-time MLB first baseman. And neither is Chris Carter. But that could be a really powerful platoon should you have Chris Carter playing first base against the lefties and Bohr against the righties. That platoon could combine for 40 home runs. And Chris Carter is playing with the Yankees, not getting you know, everyday playing time. I saw him just crush a ball like 450 feet, but that was his first home run of the year. He's not swinging the ball great, or swinging the bat great, rather. And should he, you know, be having a mediocre season in, in, in a month or two, maybe the Yankees even move on from him. Maybe they cut him. Maybe the Marlins can trade for him for a low-level prospect. I just think that Justin Bohr has not shown the ability to hit lefties, and I think it's fairly evident. And he's barely showed the ability to hit righties and Justin Moore might not even be the answer for at first base long-term for the Marlins, but that's, that's for another time. But I think Chris Carter platooning with Justin Moore takes a lot of pressure off of him and provides a lot more power to an infield that doesn't have that much power. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a solid point to bring up. I think Chris Carter's time with the Yankees, as you said, he hasn't gotten too much playing time. It really it, how much he plays for the Yankees. And if he stays a Yankee this season really depends on the health of Greg Bird. I mean, if Greg Bird is healthy for the Yankees, he's their everyday first baseman pretty much with maybe Chris Carter just playing against lefties sometimes. And Chris Carter maybe becomes expendable and the Marlins could go get him if, you know, you know, Boar's hitting a little better, but that average is still under 200. Um, but I could see them, you know, the Marlins still going after a right-handed hitting first baseman that could platoon with Boar. But on my side for my hot take, I went with the starting pitching, which we didn't talk about too much on this episode of the podcast, but it has been very good. Mine's at... Wei Yin Chen, by the end of this season, I know this is looking pretty far ahead, but will be fully worth his contract that he signed before last year. He signed for five years, $80 million with the Marlins. Obviously, had a pretty disappointing 2016 that was filled with injuries, gave up a lot of runs, a lot of home runs. But this season, he's made three starts. He's gone 16 innings. His ERA is at 3.94, and the whip is just barely over one. And his 3.33 walk to or strikeout-to-walk ratio is one of the better ones of his career. So... Um, he's really missing bats more, getting more strikeouts. His hard contact percentage, which is a stat kept by fan graphs that keeps soft contact, medium contact, and hard contact. Obviously, you want more soft and medium than hard contact. And the amount of hard contact he's given up so far this year is down almost 10% from last season. So he's been able to miss bats using his fastball a lot better like he did in Baltimore. And I think by the end of the season, it's going to show that he was worth that contract. And before... We're done here. I just wanted to bring up another Twitter question that we got from at Pablo Sally. Thanks for the question. Uh, the question was, how would you rank the starting rotation from one to five? Just right before we're done here. And um, for me, I think right now I, I would put Chen at number one. I know he doesn't have the best numbers on the team right now, but with his experience and kind of his peripherals, I put him at one. I'd then rank Adam Conley at number two. He's got a 3.00. ERA this year in three starts. Took a no-hitter, I think, into the sixth inning in one of his starts so far this season. Then I'd rank Dan Straley third, especially after the 14-strikeout appearance over the weekend. 
Um, fourth, I'd put Ed- Edinson Volquez. Obviously, he was the opening day starter, but you know the Marlins knew that they weren't going to get the Volquez of 2013 or 2014. And then number five, I'd put Tom Kohler. Um, you'd like to see the way Kohler's pitching. You'd like to see the Marlins have another option at least ready if they needed a guy like Jeff Locke or Jose Urena or even Justin Nicolino could be that option. Urena's pitched pretty well out of the bullpen so far, but that's how I'd rank the the uh, rotation. And how would you how would you rank it one to five before we finish up here? Uh, I'm pretty much right in agreement with you, and my only caveat being that. Tom Kohler has the ability to leapfrog Edison Volquez, and I think Volquez could easily be the fifth starter in the rotation because Tom Kohler in the second half last year was phenomenal. And in the first half, he looked a lot like the Tom Kohler we're looking at right now. So right, I think you are spot on with your one through five, but I do think there could be a shakeup with Tom Kohler being the fifth guy. He could slide into the fourth spot, but otherwise I think it's going to hold pretty true to that one through five there. But the Marlins need Tom Kohler to be second-half Tom Kohler last year, and that's going to be huge for them going forward. But that's going to wrap it up for today in this podcast, in this episode of Fish Bites. Please like, subscribe, and rate our podcast on iTunes. We love the feedback, and we always like to improve. Please tell us what we can do better, what we did well, and please continue to email, tweet, Send us any questions, and we will try to answer them today. I know we we got two of them today. We'll always try to get about two questions in every podcast. But I am Aram Layton with Connor Newcomb, and we are looking forward to getting back out here with you guys.